All right, today is this final message of the series that I'm doing on being wholehearted. And, and I'm, I'm going to have to give a little bit of a disclaimer right at the front. So this is part four that we're doing, and it's the last part in this one. And so I've, as we've talked about this through the first three parts, I've sort of developed this idea of what it means for us to be wholehearted people. And, and we've been centering around a particular command from Scripture. In the Old Testament, it's known as the Shema. In the New Testament, Jesus repeats that as the greatest commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We've been talking about that over the last three weeks before this as an invitation from God to be whole. Right? Not as a categorical checklist of all the different ways that we have to check off loving God, but rather as God's gift to us to be whole people in heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and we've been talking about the various ways that shows up in our world and in our lives, and we've acknowledged that, yep, we're broken people. We fall short of that. We've noted that. We've noted the ways in which this comes by sanctification. Right, that big church word, that, that God himself makes his people holy by working his spirit through them. Not anything that we do. But today I want to talk application. How does this show up and apply within our lives? And, and I give that as a disclaimer because I, I always struggle a little bit with application because the Christian faith is not about moralism. Right? So that, that's my warning here right at the front. I'm not talking about moralism, that these are the things you have to do to be a Christian. That's not what this is about. That our faith depends on grace that comes to us from God. That's what we're about. But we left last time with a question, didn't we? We left last time with a question because as we've developed this idea of being wholehearted, and, and I've acknowledged that, I think for every single one of us, we've had moments where, where we look at that and we say, that sounds so wonderful. I would love to be a person who, who has this wholehearted faith with heart, soul, mind, and strength, but it feels like it's out of my grasp. It feels like I just can't get there. So how do I get that, right? How do I know when I'm experiencing that? We left that last time noting that and asking the question that even though there's nothing we can do to make ourselves wholehearted, is there anything that we can do to cultivate wholeheartedness? Cultivate. I can't make it happen, but can I live in such a way there where all the right conditions are around me so that this wholeheartedness that comes to us from God can flourish and thrive and grow? How do I cultivate that? Think about that in several different ways, right? That if I were to injure my knee playing a softball game, that I can't make my knee heal again. I can't make my body heal. But you know what? There are some things that I can do to cultivate that process, right? Don't exert it again. Maybe physical therapy, that's necessary. Things that we do that we know, we don't make our bodies heal, but we can cultivate that process. Or perhaps cultivation is something that you associate with agriculture. It's an agricultural term, right? So I'm, in my garden at home in the springtime, I plant seeds in the ground. I cannot myself make seeds turn into plants. 
I can't do that. Only God can make seeds grow into plants. Only God does that. However, I can cultivate that. I can put just the right nutrients in the soil around it. I can make sure that it gets just the right amount of water. I can make sure that my garden is in a place where it gets the proper amount of direct sunlight. I can do things to place the conditions around there so that those plants, that those seeds that do go in the ground can thrive and flourish and grow. I can't make them grow, but I can cultivate that. At the same time, just so you know what an awful gardener I really am. I can get in the way of that too, right? I don't put the right nutrients in the soil because I don't really know what I'm doing, right? I, I don't give it enough water. I give it too much water. Or just because I live in a place that has so many trees in the woods, I, there's just not a place for direct sunlight to really get there. So not only can I put the conditions around that help those seeds to grow and flourish and thrive, you know what? I could also do some things to actually hinder that, to get in the way, to stop that. That's what we're considering today, right? This wholeheartedness between heart, soul, mind, and strength that we've been talking about for the last three weeks that comes to us as an invitation and a gift from God. How do we cultivate that put the right conditions for that to grow. Or sometimes, you know what? We actually live in ways that do the opposite. That we're hindering that, getting in the way. That's what we're considering today, okay? And if you're, if you're following along, if you're taking notes, I know I leave a big blank space in there. I'm going to have three things that we're going to talk about with that. So if you want to space that out and how you write that. Three things that we'll identify as ways to cultivate wholeheartedness. First, let's look at this from the scripture. This, this week, I'm going to use a couple of different passages, some words from Philippians 4, and then a few verses of Jesus from Matthew 11. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 4, starting at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your, heights, your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the peace of God will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this, through him who gives me strength. And then these few words from Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew. He says this. 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're asking the question, what can we do to cultivate wholeheartedness? How does that apply, and and how can we put the right conditions around that? First thing I'm going to talk about, I'm going to call replacement. I struggled a long time this week with what to call this. I mean, how this actually works, what label to give it. So I'm going to go with replacement as this comes. So this passage that we read today from Philippians 4, starting there, Paul starts out by giving this list and talking about things that maybe it seems familiar because we saw a very similar list just last week that Paul wrote almost the exact same thing in 1 Thessalonians when we looked at that passage. Things in that passage that jumped out at us, right? To rejoice, be gentle, to pray, to give thanks, don't be anxious. Those things that we find in verses 4 through 7 that I just read from Philippians today. But as I noted last week, and I'll say again this week, that these things are fruit. Right? The, these things are the result. The, these are not the ingredients that go into making us wholehearted people or developing that. These are the things that come out from being wholehearted. It's the fruit that shows up. It's the evidence that wholeheartedness is thriving within us. So Paul visits that again. These are the things that show up in your life when wholeheartedness has taken root and grows and thrives. Things like joy, gentleness, prayer, thanksgiving. And he says, don't be anxious. Wow, if I knew how to do that and tell people how to do that. Anxiety is one of those things that for so much, so many of us, it just grips us in so many ways. How do we cultivate a wholeheartedness then that can thrive and flourish so that these things become the fruit of our lives? that people see within us. So this is where Paul goes next, right? Starting in verse 8 and following, he starts talking about that, and he makes this list, a list, whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think about these things. Think about it. Take that in. It's the Greek word, legizomai, and and it means to to ponder, right? To, To reason with to meditate upon, to to fill your lives with that. One of my hobbies is cooking, and and so I do a lot of things in the kitchen, and every now and then I'll take one of these recipes where where a a piece of meat or something like that will sit in a marinade, and all those flavors work their way in as it just saturates within that. This is the idea that Paul's after here, right? Saturate your life in things that are True, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Let that be something that fills your life. I have a, I have a colleague, another pastor friend who pastors in another church, and in talking recently, he was sharing one of his concerns and frustrations of, of 
just one particular member of his church, a particular member that he said, this guy is just causing conflict right and left within our congregation. Everywhere it's just toxic, the kind of conflict that he's bringing in. And his frustration with that is he's gotten to know this gentleman is, you know, I... I see him once a week, and, we, and he comes to worship, so he gets Bible for an hour once a week. And then I know he goes and he spends the next five, six days listening to angry talk radio while driving delivery truck that he does for his job. And how can the one hour a week that I get to talk Bible possibly drown out all this other angry stuff that he's filling his life with? don't see how it works. We have cliches. Cliches like, you know, you are what you eat, or garbage in, garbage out. Maybe you've heard some of those things before, that that sometimes the thing that will cultivate a wholeheartedness is to make sure that we're putting in the right things, that we are allowing our lives to soak in all that is true and noble, right and pure, lovely and admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. So what are you filling your life with? And it's not just our heads, right? It's not just our minds, even though that's where Paul goes with this. I've been developing the the idea through this series that to be wholehearted acknowledges that there is an interconnectedness between heart, soul, mind, and body, that those things affect and impact each other. So we ask the question then that it applies in all those ways. What am I feeding into my life mentally and emotionally and spiritually and physically? What am I doing that I take in as it impacts all those other areas? Sometimes we see examples of that that are obvious, right? Let me, let me give a few obvious examples. People who struggle with, struggle with alcohol or drugs or prescription painkillers as it can be common in our society around us. That's a chemical addiction that feeds our bodies, but often people who do that do that because they're, they're trying to numb something in their head, right? Some pain or trauma, something they've been dealing with. Trying to drown out maybe some unpleasant emotions or fears or anxieties. But it shows up physically mentally, emotionally, spiritually, that sometimes those things that we feed into ourselves, into our lives, they impact all of it, our whole being. That's an extreme example, but other examples apply as well. The things that we take in and feed into our lives that affect all of the other areas that we have. So we ask the question then, what am I feeding into my life mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically? So you ask that question then, it's about replacing, right? Replacing, whenever you find yourself just, you just go through your day-to-day activities, finding some of those things that go in where you just identify, you know what, this is a life-draining source, whatever that may be. I don't know, the kind of radio you listen to, the sort of channels you watch on TV, the thing that you scroll past and 
read on your phone, whatever those things may be, when you find examples of that filling your time and you identify that as saying, this is just sucking the life out of me, right? It's creating anxiety, not helping to calm or take that away. Get rid of that. Get rid of that, but replace it. Replace it with something that is life-giving instead. So when you find yourself feeding on those things that just seem to be draining the life away, ask yourself, how can I get this one thing out, whatever that is, and replace it with something life-giving instead? You see, because if we have days that are filled with things that drain our lives, just adding 10 minutes of reading Bible in the morning, it will do something, but you're still going to have all of that other life draining going on as well. So take out what drains you and in its place, put in things that help you flourish. Things that you can look at and say, this is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, excellent and praiseworthy that I'm filling my lives with those things. So that's one thing you can do to cultivate wholeheartedness. Replace those things that just suck the life out of you and put in its place habits that give life. The next one would be this, contentment, because this is where Paul goes next, right? That he talks about that replacement of things, but then he says, I've learned what it means to be content in every and all circumstances. Contentment. That is something that comes from the Greek word autarkis. And it means contentment, but beyond that, it means contentment in the sense of being able to recognize what is sufficient. Because this is what we should distinguish in that. Sometimes when you think about being content, at least as we think about it in English, maybe sometimes contentment to you means giving up or settling for less. Right? I'll just be content with whatever. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about giving up. He's not talking about settling for less. He's talking about recognizing what is sufficient. That is what he means by contentment. And Paul says he had to learn this, right? He had to figure this out. To learn. That's the Greek word manthano. And it, and it means, it, it's not just simply to acquire information, but it implies gaining knowledge through reflection and experience that Paul had to learn, figure out what it means to be content, what it means to take in and have what is sufficient. Think about what contentment looks like for us in our world. The example that Paul gives here is food. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be well-fed. Right? That's an example that maybe fits for ways in us, too, when I think of it in terms of sufficiency. That, okay, I know sometimes that I eat insufficiently, that I'm not sufficient, right? That I'm eating too much of things that aren't healthy, an insufficient amount, that I'm not eating enough of things that are healthy to find a sufficient amount there. That we struggle sometimes with sufficiency in what it is that we're taking in. 
So recognizing contentment as sufficiency. So do I recognize? Do I recognize what is sufficient for my heart, soul, mind, body, when we think about what sufficiency means? You know, there, there's been um, quite a bit in the news lately about supply chain, right? That, that supply chain is affecting, and maybe you've seen this. You go to the grocery stores, and there's some sections, some shelves that are just wiped out. They're empty. Where is all this stuff? That supply chain has come into play here as something that Im- impacts how goods are coming to us and what's missing. I read a fascinating article by Amanda Mall in The Atlantic, last month that asked the question is it really supply chain because here's the statistics that she provides behind that that actually this year 2021 that our imports are 17 percent higher than they were two years ago in 2019 that we are actually bringing more things in now than we did two years ago 2020 you know was the pandemic year we sort of shut it all down And so now this year, here's what the speculation then is. This year then is that that we are a nation of consumers. And we've spent an entire year away from stores and malls and shopping and doing that. And now all this pent-up demand is just exploding. So even though we're bringing things in at a 17% higher rate than we did two years ago, that our unquenchable appetite to consume can't keep up. So what Amanda Mull asks is, is it really a supply chain problem that we're having or is it an overconsumption problem that we're having? That we're just taking it all. The 2020 census is complete and it shows that there are 320 million people in America. 320 million out of a world population of somewhere just under 8 billion. That is 4.3 percent of all the people on earth, right? So we as Americans make up less than five percent of all the people on the planet, but we import and consume more than 50 percent of all the goods that this world produces. It's worth asking the question, are we over-consuming because we've lost touch with knowing what is sufficient? So we just keep taking in more and more and more. Paul says he's learned contentment. He's learned what it means to be sufficient with what he has, with what he's been given. And sufficiency, contentment, cultivates wholeheartedness. So what can we do about that? Here's one thing. Use the word enough more often. If there's one thing that we could walk out of here with, of how can I address this idea of contentment and sufficiency, find more places in your day to use the word enough. And that can work both ways. Let me explain what I mean by that. For me, um, you know what, I need to find myself saying, that's enough dinner. One helping, that was enough. And I have to say it out loud because, you know what, I really want to load the plate up again and do that again. Um... I say other things out loud that maybe are a little bit goofy as my family hears it, right? When I go to the cupboard for a snack and I take out a bag of chips, I name the number of chips I'm going to take out of the bag. I'm going to have four chips right now. Four, right? Not a crazy number, because it wouldn't work if I said, I'm going to have a hundred chips right now. Nope. 
I name it and call it out loud because I want to say that's enough. That's enough. So find those places where you can use the word enough. That's enough dinner. That's enough television for today. That's enough time at the office. Enough. It works the other way too, though. It works the other way where maybe in that identifying of sufficiency, you see some things in your lives that are not sufficient. You need more. You're not getting enough. That's not enough sleep for my body to be rested. Right? That's not enough time with my family and with my kids. It's not enough time spent in the Bible in reading God's word. That sometimes when you use the word enough, it's not identifying things that are too much, but it's identifying things that are not enough, that are insufficient. So we need more. Look for ways to do that. Find that word enough coming up in your vocabulary to identify sufficiency. Because sufficiency cultivates contentment. Contentment cultivates wholeheartedness. All right, that's two. Let me give one more. Rest. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 11, what it means for us to rest. Every now and then, one of my kids will come to me with uh, an electronic device or a phone or something like that that's not working right. Dad, my phone's not working. What do I do? Or the computer's not working. What do I do? My answer is always the same. Did you try restarting? Did you reboot it? Turn it off and turn it back on again. Did you try that? Nine times out of ten, that just seems to work, right? That every once in a while, everything just needs to shut down for a little bit and then turn back on again. It needs to rest. And that there's a pattern for this, right? Of the Ten Commandments that we see in Exodus 20, there's one of them that God establishes on a pattern that he himself does, that God does. The Sabbath. The Sabbath rest is established, and the Bible tells us it's because God himself, in his creation process, after the creation was done, he rested. And so we have that pattern from God himself that every once in a while, as it comes to us in Scripture, once every seven days, turn everything off and then turn it back on again. Reboot, restart, rest. Unplug from things. Let that happen every once in a while. Sabbath rest, then, is something that is for more than just our bodies. Maybe sometimes we think of it that way, that rest is something that we do with our body. I stop working or I stop all that physical activity. But rest is also something that we take in our whole beings as well, that it's rest for our minds, rest for our hearts. Or as Jesus calls out in Matthew 11, rest for our souls, that we have a pattern of rest that's good for us to cultivate wholeheartedness, to do that. So we take these breaks, this rest. Now, think about how this really works. What does rest do? How do you know when rest is taking hold? So think about what rest actually does. Rest is being present in the moment. Let me explain how that works, okay? Let me explain what I mean by that. 
that sometimes when we're not resting, when we're busy, so often, isn't this true? So often we are focused elsewhere, right? That we're working for something else or when our minds are not resting, we're planning, we have agendas, we're thinking of what's coming next or we're trying to analyze or make sense of what had just happened. So we're busy working on that, not in the moment, but either tomorrow, the next day, the next week, the next month, or yesterday, last week, last month. We're scattered across all those places. And it's true as well of our hearts that sometimes the things that we are feeling, the passions we're embracing are focused elsewhere on some other people or some other event or some other situation or some other circumstance that we're wrapping our hearts and our feelings around those other things. That so often... When we're busy with our hearts, our souls, our minds, our bodies, that we're focusing somewhere else, rest then puts you in the moment, right? I'm going to take a break from tomorrow, the next week, the next month. I'm going to take a break from whatever was yesterday, last week, last month. I'm going to push those things aside and be in the moment. That's rest. That's how rest comes. For heart, soul, mind, body. And how do you experience that then? I love autumn, right? It's of the four seasons here in Michigan, that's my favorite one, autumn. I love the changing of the season. I love the changing of the leaves. I love the cooler, crisp air. Right? Maybe not everyone does, but I love that. I love fresh Michigan apples. Right? That is something you don't find other places. I love autumn. And there are, there's woods behind my house. So, I mean, this is a day like this would be the perfect day for me to say, you know what? I'm going to go for a walk in the woods. And then I've got a choice to make, right? While I'm walking in the woods, should I be thinking and planning of what's coming? What do I got to do tomorrow, next week? What's coming ahead? Or. You know, I'm like five episodes behind in that podcast that I'm hooked on. So let's put in the earbuds and let's try to catch up on that. And there's so many things I could do to distract me from the moment when I take that walk in the woods. So many things that might miss what's there, right? The deer standing out in the field that are in the distance, the turkeys that are going by, the fox that just goes around the corner of the trail up ahead. So many of those things that I see out there where in the moment it just catches you, catches you that, wow, I'm standing in the middle of God's beautiful harmony of creation. Can I just be in that moment? And when we are at rest, we catch that. When we're at rest, then we're catching not only that beauty of God's harmony of creation in the moment, but at some point, then it catches you that, you know what? I'm a part of that. I am a part of God's beauty and harmony in creation. Standing out there in the woods at that moment. Rest helps us recognize that. So we ask the question. The question is, what is preventing me from being fully present with God? Right? All those busynesses that distract my attention to tomorrow, next week, next month. All of those things I hold on to from yesterday, last week, last month. All those things that distract us from being 
fully present with God. What's preventing us from doing that? Find then places to regularly take moments and stop. Stop everything. Be present with God. Rest. As Jesus talks about that in Matthew 11, the word rest there is something that signifies lifting a weight, right? Easing a burden. So not not just taking a nap or getting some sleep, but it's rest that lifts a weight from upon you. That Jesus offers that when we take these moments every now and then to stop everything, forget about what's coming, forget about what happened. I know, you can't ignore it forever. But find moments to simply be present with God in the moment. Because rest cultivates wholeheartedness. All right, three things there. Three things that we can walk away with today and say, you know what, there's something I can do. God himself is the one who plants that seed of wholeheartedness within us. God himself is the one, through his spirit, who sanctifies us and makes us holy. But we can cultivate that. We can do things to create the right conditions in our lives so that it can flourish and grow in certain ways. Replace all of those life-draining things with something life-giving. Find the meaning of enough, sufficiency, contentment. And take some moments to rest everything. Find yourself doing those things, and you will find that this wholeheartedness flourishes. It grows. It thrives. And you will find the fruit that comes out of that. Joy, prayer, thanksgiving, those things that we desire to see God grow within us come through a wholehearted life. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word and for showing us that you are the one who supplies all that we need, but also showing us how we can live in ways that connect and take advantage of all of that. So, Lord, we, we have to confess that there are times when, when we've missed that, when we have not cultivated this gift that you've given to us. In fact, we confess there's times when we've actually squashed that and worked against it. Lord, help us to recognize how it is that you've called us to be whole in you once again. We pray that through your Holy Spirit, that you would guide us in that process so that we may know what it means to be whole and love you, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we may see the fruit that we bear because of that through your Spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.